I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. This week, we are welcoming historian and author Heather Darcy. She's a self-described Tudor-adjacent historian who is the author of two books about Anna of Cleves and her siblings. So Anna, Duchess of Cleves, and then The Children of the House of Cleves, which comes out this summer and fall in the U.S. She's also the co-host of the Tudor Dynasty podcast, and she's the author of the maidensandmanuscripts.com website. And we're really excited to have her here because her book on Anna of Cleves really ties in perfectly to the series we just did on origins, um, talking about Anna as a German figure, her upbringing, but also the world in which she was raised. So we're really thrilled to have you here today, Heather, to talk about Anna. Well, thank you. It is as it's so nice to be here and to meet you guys. As you can probably tell, we're not calling her Anna of Cleves today. We're calling her Anna because one of the things that struck us both in your introduction of um, your book about Anna is just like the discovery of her name and that kind of personal connection through the discovery of her name. Yeah, you know, genius doesn't always take a great spark. I'm not saying I'm a genius, but just to use a turn of phrase. I started studying German when I was 15. I majored in it for my bachelor's degree. So I have a lot of experience with the German language. And at the time, not as much experience with English queens, and I was very interested in reading about Henry VIII's wives, and I always hated reading about Anne of Cleves being brought over from Germany, and Henry paid all this money, and then he dumped her after six months because he thought she was ugly, and it kind of dawned on me that that, her name couldn't have been Anne, and again, not not brilliance, but because I wasn't familiar with the idea that women's names were anglicized when they came to England to be queens. Makes perfect sense. Just never really thought about it. I'm like, oh, I bet you her name is Anna with an A at the end because that's a that's a German name. And I wanted to learn more about her because, like I mentioned, it didn't it just her story didn't quite line up. So I sat down and wrote a letter to the mayor of the city of Cleves explaining who I was and what I wanted to do and it just took off from there. I think there's something so lovely about what you've done with her story though um, because quite often uh, and we Kate and I have spoken about this before we kind of get stuck inside the set narrative of divorced beheaded died divorced beheaded survived and you talk about them in terms of their utility of what they bring to England and nothing more even knowing her full name so Anna Vondermark my German, I, I did French school, not German, sorry. Um, so even that just brings her alive in such a more vivid way and that she had this whole identity outside of England and outside of what she did for Henry. So interesting. Yeah, we were talking about just, I mean, if you go up to probably a lot of Tudor historians, but also people who love them and study them for fun, and you ask them about Anna Vondermark, there would probably be a lot of people who had no idea what you were talking about. So something just as simple as calling her by the name that she had at birth just opens up so many doors. And so she was, her father did insist that his children be known as of Cleves. So they did have the last name of Vondermark in like a formal sense, like how we talk about Henry VIII being Henry Tudor. That was his last name, but he didn't, didn't really have a last name. And Mary I would have been Mary of England. So that's kind of a perfect segue into asking you to maybe talk a little bit more about 
Cleves in general. The area of Cleves is in modern West Central Germany, and it's in the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia. The main city, city there is Dusseldorf, which was also a very important city in Anna's time. Cleves itself was a city and a duchy, and so you can still go to the city. You can see the Swan Castle or Schwanenburg. That castle, it fell out of use at some point. It was a prison for a little while, and then it was bombed. And so it looks, they've rebuilt the Swan Tower, so the main tower with a clock in it. But it doesn't really look like anything on the inside. They have a kind of more scientific exhibit inside the castle. So if you're going to that castle to to see what Anna's life was like, you will not understand, you won't gain an understanding of that from looking at that castle. But down the Rhine River, a little bit south, is Dusseldorf. That wound up being the main seat also for Anna's brother Wilhelm when he became Duke of the United Duchies. So when I'm talking about the United Duchies, I'm talking about the Duchy of Cleves and the County of Mark, and then the Duchies of Jülichenberg, which were already unified. Anna's father, or excuse me, grandfather, made a deal with Anna's maternal grandfather that their children would wed. They were the same age. They were both born in the early 1590s. They make a pact. The kids get married in around 1510. And then it's agreed that Anna's father, Johann III, is going to inherit, by right of the wife, Jure Oxoris, dominion over Jülichenberg. So that's how the duchies wind up coming together. And this formally happens in about 1522. And so then this territory becomes known as the United Duchies. And what's strategically important about this area is aside from being very, very, a very wealthy family, there's a lot of rivers that run through it. And it's in the heart of the Holy Roman Empire, because to the southeast of there, in modern day Austria, we have Vienna, which was an important territory for the Habsburg family. Then we also have Prague, which at the time was German, but that's um, Prague or Bohemia or whatever you'd like to call it, which is in the modern Czech Republic. And then in the Northwest, we have, of course, the low countries of modern day Belgium and Netherlands. So if you control that area, you can control or at least really, really mess up the plans of the empire if you don't let commerce or soldiers or just even diplomatic figures traverse through there. Well, I think, too, that was quite interesting because, again, I think from an English narrative, it's very much when we talk about Anne of Cleves and her marriage to Henry, uh, Anna, sorry, uh, and her marriage to Henry VIII, it's very much Henry and Cromwell were throwing Cleves a bone and that they were almost a bit of a, a bit of a backwater country that no one really knew about. And in actual fact, that's not the case at all. It's, if I may, it was slightly the reverse. Yeah. That being said too, though, I thought another interesting thing that I kind of knew about her, but didn't really until you mapped it out so well in your book was how related she was to everyone else in Europe. Um, it's something that we talk a lot about with Catherine of Aragon, because Catherine being the daughter of two of the most powerful rulers in Europe. So of course, she had all these connections. And, you know, later, she, you know, had the connections with the Holy Roman Empire through her nephew. But Anna was right there, too. She had a ton of connections all over Europe. You know, she was, um, you know, related to the kings of France. And this idea of her kind of being this obscure figure is really not accurate at all. Absolutely. And her uh, Mary Queen of Scots was actually related to Anna Cleves very distantly. They were cousins. And I think that's in the in the family tree in the front of the book. And Anna's brother Wilhelm, his second wife, was the niece of Charles V. So they wind up becoming extremely well connected and brought into the Habsburg fold by the, by I think it was 1547 or 48 or so. They were firmly within the Habsburg family. 
Anna's family then, you talked a little bit about, you know, her parents and the fact that her mother was kind of an heiress in her own right, but also um, her sisters were pretty amazing too, the more you read about her sisters um, in both of your books. Yeah, as far as I can tell, all three of them were very feisty. So I, I, I'd like to say that that's a family trait. I can't confirm that because I wasn't there, but I think they were all very feisty, in particular Amalia, who seemed to delight in being a thorn in their brother's side. When you are an important noblewoman, or if you were an important noblewoman in this area of Germany, you would have been raised in what's called the Frauenzimmer, or ladies' room, or you can also call it ladies' court, but literally it's ladies' room. So Anna and her sisters, and maybe their cousins, or some other important noble daughters would have been together in the Frauenzimmer with Anna's mother, and some governesses, and also little boys up to the age of seven. So there were males in there. Any male that served within the Fallen Sima, as soon as they turned 13, they were booted out. So they had to be 12 and under. The only men who were really allowed to come into the Fallen Sima, and particularly allowed to come into the Fallen Sima overnight, were physicians. There were regulations in place to protect the women. Also, the doors would be locked at night. And I recognize that some of the things I'm saying do make it sound like she was very, very sheltered. I would prefer to use the phrase structured. So she did learn things. They would have reviewed the Bible. They had a specific doorway that went from the, the main shadow courtroom into the chapel. So that she would have attended mass. She would have learned how to sew, how to cook, how to maintain her household. So one could reasonably assume that she would have learned some basic mathematics, some basic accounting. I believe she probably learned how to play chess because we know that her older sister, Zabilla, knew how to play chess by the time Zabilla arrived in Saxony. She probably learned some German card games. They didn't really do anything that they viewed as light entertainment. And by lightness, I don't mean uh, lighthearted. I mean not high-minded. And music was kind of too light for them. They would spend most of their day in the Fallensima. They would come out usually in the afternoon to socialize with the governess watching them like a hawk. And if there are any court hunts, they would usually participate in those, but again, under the watchful eye of a governess. So they weren't sheltered. It was just a different structure. It then, when she comes to England, makes a lot more sense about her and her personality. Again, like you said, rather than her being boring or, or whatever it was that the, the phrases were used um, for the, the annulment case. And it it gives us so much more insight to her as an individual that we just don't get. And I just find it very, very lovely. I love by contrast to that, um, if the English kind of looked onto the structure as being very um, confining and like sort of holding it against Anna for like, well, of course, you know, you're boring because look at how you grew up. Then the Germans were looking onto the English and thinking like, how debauched are all of you, you know, with exactly. your music and your alcohol. and Precisely. And just because court closed down at a certain time and maybe dancing wasn't as big of a pastime when you were unmarried and younger, they still had poet poetry and things like that at court. So it wasn't totally devoid of culture. It's just the skills that were prioritized in Germany for a young woman were very different from the skills that were prioritized in England and similar cultures. I wanted to ask you about the fact that Anna was growing up at a time in Germany when the Reformation was in full swing because we have talked about, um, you know, our second series on the podcast was about the Reformation and how the, the six queens kind of fit into the conversation, both, you know, on an Anne Boleyn scale, but also like their personal beliefs. 
And one thing that I think we've always been led to believe about Anna is that she was sort of the Protestant match. It's a little bit more fluid. In your book, you very clearly make the point that Anna's, it, even within Anna's family, it's very messy and people are shifting alliances all the time. There's a lot more tolerance than you would expect, which both of us found very surprising. With Children of the House of Cleves, a book that comes out this year, it should also be interesting to people who want to learn more about the German Reformation, because you cannot talk about Anna's family without talking about the German Reformation. Her, The way this is relevant to Henry and Cromwell is that her sister, Zabilla, married the elector Johann Friedrich of Saxony. Johann Friedrich's uncle was the original person who protected Martin Luther. Zabilla's father-in-law, I believe it was, began the, the League of Schmalkald or Schmalkaldic League, or in English, it's commonly called the Protestant League, and her husband took it over. But this was a very, very powerful political and military alliance that in theory could go against Charles V. So in my mind, or the way I think about Zabilla and her husband is that they were the first Lutheran power couple. But so Anna herself, as far as we know, she was Catholic. Her mother was very devoutly Catholic. Her father was absolutely a Catholic. And during the start of the Lutheran Reformation, that of course begins in 1517. And so by the time Anna's father is firmly in charge of the United Duchies, he does begin to pass religious acts. I'm not going to call them reform because they weren't necessarily reform, but he didn't so much hunt down and persecute Lutherans because he also kind of couldn't do that because the Billa is like one half of the Lutheran power couple, but also they, they banned promoting Lutheranism within their territory. So Anna would have grown up in religiously tolerant society. Now, we do know that Zabilla, of course, is one half of the Lutheran power couple, was absolutely a Lutheran. Their younger sister, Amalia, was a Lutheran. Wilhelm was Catholic on paper. He vacillated. So the family overall had a very interesting relationship with religion. We know that Amalia really liked to kind of stick it to Wilhelm over religion to a point that it enraged him. And he almost stabbed her once with a sword. We also know that she specifically did not attend her sister-in-law's funeral because it was Catholic. And there's more about that in my second book. But Anna herself, as far as we know, was Catholic. Whether or not she was pious, like Catherine of Aragon, is a totally different question. It makes sense when you say it out loud that it would be complex because the Reformation didn't just happen overnight. It's not just something where everybody in Germany woke up one day and was like, right, we're, we're Lutheran now. All of this politicking that's going on throughout the continent and all of these changes are happening within this one family to the point where siblings are actually threatening each other. So I don't know, that was just so illustrative of what Anna would have grown up in. time a little bit to talk about when Anna was actually coming to England slash has arrived in England and the kind of first impressions of her because in the narrative that's been constructed both by you know Henry and his advisors but then by historians since the common belief that not only Henry didn't like Anna's looks which I think you know we've debunked on our show and most people don't subscribe to that thought now but that it had more to do with Anna's cultural differences and like they just they didn't click you know the idea that these two cultures just didn't gel I just wanted to hear your kind of perspective on that from having studied 
what her upbringing actually did look like. While I recognize that those have been used for a very, very long time as reasons for the annulment, they make zero sense. There were people from the United Duchies present at court throughout Henry VIII's life. They would have dressed how they dressed. So the fact that I think sometimes Anna's wardrobe is pointed to as a reason why Henry didn't like her, he would have been accustomed to that wardrobe. She did not dress strangely. Also, it's kind of interesting. Henry VIII met several of his father's-in-law unwittingly over his lifetime, but he met her father, Johann, when he was part of a delegation for Charles V. So when we're talking about clothing and things like that, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't stand up. Anna was tall. She was about five foot eight, and Henry, I believe, was about six feet tall or maybe a little taller. So she was a tall lady. And she, as far as I can tell, and maybe I'm wrong about this, again, we just have portraits, she appeared to be curvy. We know that her older sister, Zabilla, had four children, all boys. And back then, of course, it was the woman who was in charge of determining the sex of the baby at birth. And so keeping that in mind, Anna would have been a great bride because, okay, it's in her family to give birth to lots of boys. She's tall. She's 24. This is awesome. So again, makes no sense that Henry's like, well, I'm going to get rid of this lady who we already know her family is good at having boys and who is tall and youthful for a teenager. And we don't know what Catherine Howard looked like. Maybe she had a bodacious bod that was also good for childbearing. We don't know. Um, but so from that perspective, too, of just the older sister having all of the sons, it, it doesn't make sense why Henry would have annulled the marriage, purely because he didn't think she was attractive. We have to keep in mind that our foundation for the English story of Anna's life, and I'm going to use the term story because in my opinion, it's pretty made up, doesn't come about until Cromwell has already been put in prison in the Tower of London. And so we're relying on a document that was created by the secret council put together to figure out how to have an annulment of Anna's marriage. And then it's echoed in a letter written by Cromwell after he signs this attestation written by the secret council. And at the end of which Cromwell cries for mercy, mercy, mercy. That sounds like a load of hooey to me. But from this, we also get the tale of Henry shows up at Rochester Castle, is displeased with Anna's appearance or something about her, and it gets off to a very poor start. In contrast, the German perspective is very, very different. And even if we keep in mind that there's, you know, there's side A and side B and the truth is somewhere in the middle, it kind of lends itself more to the idea that the, re the reason the marriage was annulled was for political issues rather than because Henry had an issue with Anna. To me, it makes so much more sense to view this, like you said, somewhere in the middle. I, I like this idea that maybe there were some differences in personality between them and maybe they did gel right away, but all of that took a backseat to the political drama unfolding between Anna's country and England. The fact that it did move so quickly and so expediently also points to it not just being a I don't like your clothes and you smell, you know, it, it's, it's much more complex than that. Yeah. And I think that things might've turned out different differently if Anna's brother Wilhelm was not sneaking behind Henry's back and making other political alliances of which Henry did not approve. And also if Anna's brother-in-law, Johann Friedrich had actually allowed England into the Protestant league. So he put Johann Friedrich, put a moratorium on allowing in new members for, I think two or three years, 
this is pure speculation, but if I'm Johann Friedrich, I probably want to make sure that the irascible Henry VIII really wants to stay married to my sister-in-law, Anna. So let's not let him into the league until we're certain of it. Also, he still seems to be pretty Catholic. So I think things could have been a lot different for Anna had her brother not gone behind Henry's back. And also England was allowed into the Protestant League because then they would have had a counterbalance to the emperor because the last thing Henry wanted was a, a war with Charles V. And I think, too, the, the political element makes a lot more sense, given that, you know, after their marriage was annulled and stayed in England and the relationship that Anne and Henry shared, had it been a, you know, a more personal thing, like we were saying, like, didn't, their, their personalities didn't match, or, you know, there was a complete cultural disconnect that didn't even allow them to be in the same room as each other. I don't necessarily see that relationship enduring in the same way that it did, you know, if, if we then just take the, the English sources on a face value. Thinking about the fact that Anna then stayed in England and she became a member of the English court in the sense that, you know, she was the king's sister, but then also she was very close with his children. How would she have viewed herself moving forward? Because we know from history that she has become a very English historical figure, uh, like we said, exemplified by the fact that we call her Anne of Cleves, which is the anglicized version of her name but how would she have viewed herself would she have still considered herself a member of a kind of german ducal family or would she have completely assimilated into the english court when she signed letters to her family she did identify herself as anna using her german name she did continue to engage in german behaviors if you will in her private homes such as things like cooking from what I do know, she wasn't exactly happy with what happened. She was absolutely devastated. Her life was in limbo for a long time, and I don't think she ever lost her German identity. So maybe that's a way to look at it. Did she stop being German at some point and be English? I don't think that happened. And I don't know that that... I, I think that she probably would have been more English, if we can put it that way, culturally, if she remained Queen of England. But because she was left to have her own household, there was no reason for her to not be a German in England or behave like a German in England. I do want to point out, too, that when she stayed in England, it wasn't because she felt like it. I think she had to because it would have been too dangerous for her to go home. And yes, it is true that she had all this money. So that was absolutely a silver lining. But that's not the only reason she stayed there. A lot of your book is devoted to this idea of kind of freeing Anna from the English historical narrative. So elaborate a bit on what you think the benefit is of looking at Anna through the German lens, like her, you know, her native historical lens. I think it overall, it just makes her life story more sensible. If we look at it as she, Henry paid all this money, he paid an extraordinary amount of money to transport her from Germany to England, because we have to keep in mind, going back to earlier in the conversation, whatever money Wilhelm had set aside to pay as a dowry for Anna would have been for that of a German count, not for an English king. And so that was a big, there was a lot of haggling going on uh, over who would pay for Anna to go to England. So Henry pays all this money to bring her over and then allegedly has one bad interaction with her. And that just sours the entire marriage. And then he never even bothers trying to consummate the marriage, decides that this is a terrible idea. Catherine Howard's really hot. So I'm just going to go through all this to annul the marriage and rather than sending this lady back home I'm just gonna elevate her to the status of my sister so she's higher than anyone else in the realm other than my daughters this seems reasonable 
it made no sense. It was completely nonsensical to me. And so I think that looking at her life through the German lens, again, as you guys said, I'm a self-described Tudor adjacent historian. We have to remember there are things happening outside of England and, and they motivated what was happening inside of England. And so again, looking at what her idiot brother was doing and what was happening with Charles V, what was happening with the King of France, what was happening with Anna's brother-in-law, it just makes so much more sense. And again, I think when you say it out loud, it makes complete sense to look at her from a German perspective rather than just a singular English perspective. And I think Kate and I have spoken about this before, where we just, I think English history, especially in the 16th century, can become very insular and it's very inward looking because it, for, for whatever reason, I think that's a whole episode all, all by itself. But um, when you then take the time to step back and actually look at it as part of a wider political piece or, you know, a wider political game that's going on, it makes so much more sense when you can then see fuller individuals rather than a, a snapshot of someone. Listeners, dear listeners, if you're intrigued by this conversation, the book that we've been focusing on during this episode is based on my book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, that is available as a paperback, as a hardback, and also Kindle. You can usually order it online in the U.S., and you can pick it up at your favorite bookstores in the United Kingdom that is completely out now. The second book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, is released in the UK on June 15th and then internationally, so the US, on September 12th, I believe it is. If you cannot wait until September and you're in the US, you can order it from the Amazon UK, but your prime shipping will not work, so you would have to pay the shipping. And for those of us who follow uh, Six Queens on social media, we will definitely tag Heather in all of our posts so you can get quick links to all of the books that she just mentioned. So on behalf of Hallie and me, I just want to say thank you so much for this, Heather. It's been very fun to really kind of complete the origin series with someone who I think a lot of us really realized in the last half an hour that we know nothing about. Well, thank you. It was very lovely to, to meet with you and chat with you today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. We're on a break now between series, but please keep an eye out for more specials coming this spring and for our next series, Motherhood, coming to you later in the summer. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and subscribe on your favorite podcast apps. We'd also love to hear from you, so please consider leaving a rating and review. Long live the queens.